My name is Jenny. I'm the associate pastor here at Bethany Northeast, and I have the privilege of sharing our message with us this morning from our text in Deuteronomy. And I'm going to read this for us, and then we'll dive in to our sermon today. Deuteronomy 34, starting in verse 1. Feel free to follow along if you have your Bibles. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the whole region, from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on the oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. And since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. And I have the privilege of sharing with you on this text this morning. This summer summer we've actually been studying uh, Moses' life. It's been a long series on Moses' life. If you've been with us most of this time, you've, you've hopefully learned a lot about him. And uh, this chapter specifically is looking at the final chapter in in his life. And it comes at the end of Deuteronomy. This is essentially a book that documents three very long speeches by Moses to the people as he's nearing the end of his life. And it's this last chapter that I think is the only chapter where Moses doesn't actually speak. So most of it is just a, a long speech of him. But this is the chapter that is written to document how Moses dies. And I seem to have gotten the really cheery passages lately because two weeks ago I spoke about anger and judgment and now we're talking about death. And I promise I'm a a little more upbeat than that most of the time, but this sermon will be a little heavier than than some. We are going to talk about death today. And the truth is, I believe these verses about how Moses dies and really on on a macro level, all of Deuteronomy is a testimony in and of itself about the last years of Moses' life. And these have power and wisdom for us today, I think, especially in this season as we enter into fall, which is a season where things are dying. And it's a season where we're balancing this desire to slow down and maybe hibernate. If you're me, I love, I like to sleep more as it gets darker. And we're balancing that desire with this new activities, new school year, new jobs, new rhythms of life. And so I think as we balance that, and as Jack has been saying actually lately, for many of us, this time of year feels more like New Year's than actual January 1st does. 
I think it's a time where we have a lot to learn about how to live in intimacy with God in the midst of a life that's constantly changing, moving forward, and ultimately that's moving towards death for all of us. And so that's what we're studying this morning. Before we get into it, would you pray with me once again? And Lord, now as we open your word, as we come before it humbly, we ask that you would teach us more about who you are, even as I prayed that our children would learn as well, God. We know that we have much to learn. Give us eyes to see you more clearly and to see ourselves more clearly as well as we are in your story in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for having to prepare a sermon on death for you all this week, I actually haven't experienced much death in my life. I've been really, in some ways, very lucky. Uh, All my grandparents have passed away, but I haven't really been uh, intimately connected with them when that happened. I was either too young or I was um, just not in a place in life where I was able to be close with them uh, in those final years. But there is one exception to my sort of general lack of experience with death. Because almost seven years ago, uh, a friend of mine called me from Portland on a Saturday morning it was in December. It was one of those out-of-the-blue phone calls that makes you wonder what the, what the person's calling about. And this time it was bad news because one of our friends, uh, mutual friends, had been climbing up on Mount Hood the day before and hadn't returned. And the, my friend told me there was search and rescue teams out looking for him. His name's Anthony. And for the two people that had been with him. It turned out I knew one of the other people too. And both of them had been on staff with me at summer camp for years. Close friends, they'd just disappeared on Mount Hood in the middle of December. And we waited for five days, and we were watching the storms roll in and scouring news sites and weirded out to see our friends' pictures on CNN and these big news sites. And hundreds of us were praying across the country for these folks, for these dear friends, that a miracle would happen, that they'd be found somehow. And... Ultimately, five days in, they called off the search. Anthony's family decided to have a memorial service the week before Christmas, even though he was still technically missing. It was so surreal. And it was my first real experience with someone dying who was close to me, but who wasn't sick, and didn't, I didn't have a long time to process it, or wasn't getting on in age. Um, and he had died on the mountain, and his friends had too. And I'll never forget his memorial service. Anthony was 25 when he died, and his memorial service was packed. Church in Longview is just full of people. He had touched so many lives in such a short time, and he was a kind and quiet guy who just loved the mountains more than life itself. But the reason I'll never forget his memorial service is because I learned there, no kidding, that he carried a card in his backpack with him every time he went out into the wilderness. And it said, if you find this card, I've gone to be with my father in paradise. I have gone home. He had this innate sense that he would not be on this earth forever. He was very able to accept his own mortality, his own death. And so he wanted to live every day well. And that that memorial service, the life he had lived was so evident that he had lived for Christ. It was incredible. And it still floors me because I'm nowhere near close to living as though death is that close or such a reality for me. 
I'm nowhere near that reconciled to it. But there's a powerful lesson in that for me this morning. In looking at death straight on, in seeking to learn from it, in not avoiding it as a subject that's taboo or too heavy to talk about. And I recognize this morning this is heavy, but I think Moses' death has a lot to teach us about true life. And this is sort of the thesis of our message this morning, that specifically, he has a lot to teach us about life in deep relationship with our Creator, knowing that our Creator God has timelines that are, and promises that are much longer and much larger than we can fathom. And we've got to learn what it means to be in that kind of relationship as we go through life. And there's actually three specific elements or characteristics I want to look at of how Moses lives in his last years, how he dies, and that I'm going to bring up for us today. And first, we talked a little about this a few weeks ago, Moses dies without arriving at the destination he spent the last 40 years working towards. And the, this is the first element of his death, that is, it happens while he is still doing work, while he is still fulfilling his ministry. It's unfinished, it's incomplete. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about God's decision to keep him out of the promised land and how it was a leadership decision. It wasn't just a harsh punishment for a peculiar crime. And you can go back to, and listen to that if you missed it. It's online. But today, we're going to focus on God and Moses on the mountain in their final encounter in this first point. Because God takes Moses up to the top of the mountain called Nebo, which towers over the city of Jericho, and he tells him to look down. And then God somehow shows Moses the entire promised land. And it's a bit of a miracle because even though Moses' eyes are still sharp, we read, it seems God somehow has given him the power to see very, very far. He shows him all the places where the people of Israel will eventually settle and live and thrive. And you can just imagine the bittersweet emotion that must have been in Moses as he looks down over this beautiful land. He looks at fruit trees and fertile soil and the livestock, and the mighty Jordan River that makes all of this land so lush, all knowing he will not be able to touch that soil, that he will not be able to eat that fruit of those trees, but that his people, who he's led and pulled and pushed along for these last 40 years, that they will experience it, that their kids will build houses and have babies and be rooted in this beautiful place. And Moses helped make it possible such joy for that knowledge and yet such sorrow that he's not going to be with them as they experience it. God reminds him, though, in this moment that he's not alone in experiencing that kind of bittersweet emotion. He's not the only one who's had to miss out on seeing God's promises fulfilled. And he's not the only one who had to wait, who's had to watch and, and believe that it will turn out for good. Others have gone through this. God says to Moses, and I'm going to paraphrase verse 4 again for you, but you can follow along to see what it actually says. God says, here it is. This is the land that I swore I would give to Abraham's children, and then to his son Isaac, and then to his son Jacob. Each of them received my promise that I would give this land to their children's children. But you, Moses, you have gotten to see it with your very eyes. And my people are about to enter this land, but just as your forefathers had to trust that I would be faithful, now you too have to trust that I will be faithful, for you won't be entering it yourself. And even though these words can sound harsh, I hear comfort in them too. 
It's a reminder that Moses is in good company with the people who've died waiting on God's promises. It's a reminder that God's faithful because look where you are. You're on the cusp of this land that has been a promise for generations. And he is in good company. We read of this happening time and time again with God's people. This is King David, right, who wanted to build a temple for the worship of God to happen in one rooted permanent place. But it wasn't until he died and his son became king that that became a reality. And it's the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He ardently believed, I think, that he would see Jesus return in his lifetime just based on the letters that he writes. But then towards the end of his life, in Philippians chapter 1, he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi from prison. And he says, he tells them he's torn between death and life. That now he believes to go on living would be good because he'd be able to work and labor on behalf of Christ. But to die would also be good because he would gain the experience of dwelling with Christ face to face. I think at this point, Paul knows he will probably die before Christ completes his work in this world. And he makes peace with the possibility that he won't see the kingdom come in full. And this is us, right? In fact, this has been the big picture of this whole sermon series we've been on in Moses. That we are people who will die before we see Christ return. Most likely. I don't know that for certain for any, by any means. But most likely, that's the case. We are people who will die without accomplishing everything we hope to, who will die without seeing all of our dreams become reality, without seeing all of God's promises fulfilled. And so what does that knowledge mean for us? Well, scripture, I think, tells us. This is Hebrews chapter 11 is what I've been summarizing for you, sneakily, um, over this last few minutes. This is a chapter that lists person after person in scripture who believed God's promises in faith but did not see them fulfilled in their lifetime. So after the author of Hebrews finishes this long list of people in the Old Testament who have waited without seeing God's promises fulfilled, verse 39 reads, all these people were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Would they see it completed? And some of you might recognize the next verse. This is what tells us what to do. It's Hebrews 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, meaning all these people who've done this before us, let's throw off everything that hinders us, the sin that tangles us up, and let's run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is what Moses did models for us and does over and over again, fixes his eyes on God, knows him face to face. And now as he enters the final moments of his life, he's still where with God on top of this mountain and God showing him what will be and asking Moses to trust him once again, to be that he'll be faithful. And so if you and I today really believe what God says is true, if we believe with every fiber of our being that everything that God has promised will come true. How should we live? How would we live? I know that I don't have that 100% faith yet. But if I did, if I fully believed, for example, that Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is absolutely true when he promises 
is stating an absolute truth when he promises that you don't have to worry about your life, right? Because God cares about you and the details of your life deeply. If I believed that 100%, how would I treat my money? I would, I would give it away to people in need much more freely than I do if I could believe that without any doubt, without worry for myself. And for example, if I fully believed Jesus' promise that those who have loved the least among us have in fact loved God himself in doing that. I might have the courage to invite people into my home for dinner who are totally different from me, who are considered the least in our society, the homeless, the prostitute, the drug addict. And finally, these are just examples I've thought of of things I really hope to see come to more and more fruit in my life. Finally, if I would fully believe the angels that speak in revelations and proclaim that when Christ returns, every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, I could live without the fear of death and I could live without the fear of friends and family dying. But with the constant awareness that not even death would separate me. And this is what I think we can learn from Moses without his dying, without having fully arrived. We could learn that he was able to lead the people for years, despite knowing that he wouldn't go where they were going, because he believed God would fulfill his promises. And we're able to move further and further into God's story, even when we can't see God's promises yet being fulfilled for us. If we can have this kind of faith, if we can run that race marked out for us so that even when my savings account dwindles because I'm giving more of my money away or even when I'm grieving the sickness or death of a friend, I am confident of God's promises in my, in my lifetime on earth or beyond it. That's our first lesson, the first characteristic of Moses' death. That Moses died without arriving And the second is found in verses five through eight, where we read about his actual death. Because first off, it says in verse five, Moses died at the Lord's command, which in and of itself is pretty crazy. Moses dies when God speaks that it should be so. And it in fact appears that God himself buries Moses, which I just offer as an interesting fact. This is very rare in scripture. And it's kind of a beautiful thing. Such an intimate act for God to do that for Moses. And then in verse 7, we read that Moses was old. And I mean 120 years old is old by, I think, any of our standards. I googled the oldest living person today, and uh, I was curious. And it's an Italian woman named Emma Murano. She's 116. So Moses was four years older than the oldest living person that we know about on our earth. And I saw pictures of her. It's fun, fun thing to Google. I saw pictures of her, and she's quite a woman. Looks like she, uh, in fact, if you Google her, you'll find out all kinds of interesting things, like she was single her whole life, and she thinks that's why she was able to live so long. But her body looks like she could maybe not climb a mountain tomorrow, to be fair. Uh, Although I'm sure she still has lots of vim and vigor in her. Yet Moses, remember, at 120, just climbed a mountain. His physical strength has not left him in 120 years. It's amazing. But Moses didn't just die with physical strength. He died with an incredible strength of heart, strength of spirit. And that's really where I want to focus on this particular lesson or characteristic. 
Because do you know how he spent the last several weeks and months of his life? He was public speaking. He was out there telling Israel 33 chapters worth, this is all of Deuteronomy, all about their history, their 40-year history in the wilderness, their coming out of Egypt. He tells them and reminds them of all the rules and laws that God has set forth for them to take into the promised land. And he warns them over and over again to obey God, to make their lives in the new land oriented around God and his order. And then in chapter 33, 32 and 33, he blesses every tribe of Israel. And keep in mind that Moses has known for some time now that he wouldn't be able to actually go into the land with the people, that he wouldn't get to experience this land that's rumored to be flowing with milk and honey. And knowing that, he could have easily told Joshua, who would be his successor, to just take over, right? He could have decided to leave and retire, maybe go back to Midian where he was a shepherd for so many years. Or he could have cursed and blamed and held bitterness against the people, the people who in some ways caused him to not be able to enter into this promised land. And then he could have just given up and let himself sleep the days away and finally get some of that rest he probably deserved. But Moses doesn't retire, and he doesn't stay angry and bitter, and he doesn't give up on the people. He continues to teach and lead and bless And it takes incredible strength to decide to love and bless and teach those who will be here long after you, those who will be able to go places you won't, especially those who might have caused you pain in your life. And this is the high school T-science teacher. This is examples of this in our life. Someone who retires from Boeing and becomes to be, decides to become a high school science teacher or the children's ministry volunteer in her 60s who has raised her own kids and taught for 40 years. This is my aunt and uncle, who in their 60s are now planning for, their, for the first time to head overseas together in their sort of second calling, second career, to minister to missionaries in Eastern Europe. This is the person who goes to plant trees in the Amazon so that in another 500 years we'll have an old growth forest there again. The real test of metal and strength of spirit is to do some of these things not when life is easy and good, but when you're facing a trial. It might be death, as Moses was, or it might be sickness or a job disappointment. It might be depression or a relationship struggle. And in the midst of that dark season, are you finding the strength of spirit to continue to love and bless And, and teach and give wisdom to others. Verse eight of our passage today says that Israel mourns Moses for 30 days. And from all that we have recorded of Israel's history, and from our New Testament scriptures even, his memory was loved and cherished and revered for generations. And I don't think I would argue that that would not be the case if he had turned inward and given up at the news that his dream would go unfulfilled that the news that he would die before Israel ever made it into the promised land. And this is a challenge to us. It's certainly a challenge to me that no matter what season of life I'm in, no, no matter what season of life we're in, whether you're 10 years old or 40 or 80, that we do not lose our strength. And, not, and physical strength is not the point here. It's nice, it's wonderful. We can do things to hope keep it, but it's out of our control ultimately. The true strength that propels us in this life is the strength of spirit. 
And of course, it's not something we just conjure up. This is the strength of the Spirit, of the Spirit who gave us the first breath of life, the one who can even give the oldest person on earth the strength to run and not grow weary, to walk and not faint, as we're promised as possible by the prophet Isaiah. This is the test that Moses ultimately passes. With today being the 15th anniversary of 9-11 and the terror attacks in 2001, there have been stories resurfacing, right, of the people who lost their lives that day. And I caught a glimpse of one in my newsfeed this week, which is where I get most of my news, and it said something about a family of 10 children losing their parents. And because of the idea of having 10 children is totally mystifying to me, I clicked on it. I was curious about this family. And I found this long CNN article, some of you might have read it, uh, about the Palombo family. And I'd encourage you to find it if you haven't seen it. I, I will summarize a little bit of it here because it struck me in this idea of strength. It tells the story of the family of Frank and Jean Palombo, who had 10 kids, ages 11 months to 15 years old in September of 2011. Frank was a firefighter. He left for work on September 11th, and he didn't come home. He ended up at the Twin Towers that day, and he gave his life to save a number of people, but it was actually the mother of this family and these 10 kids that are really captivating as you read the story. Because Jean Palombo spent the next 12 years raising these 10 young, kid, 10 young kids by herself. Though she gives the church she was part of actually some credit for all of the help they gave her. The article talks about, though, how Jean talked to her kids about God's love for them. That she made sure they wouldn't doubt that in the face of what they'd experienced. It talks about how she tended to their faith. And it even talks about how she herself forgave the terrorists who killed her husband. She's quoted as saying, God's love has exceeded this evil. Talk about strength. And then, Jean was diagnosed with cancer in 2009. And she, the article reads that she became even more loving as the cancer worsened. And after four years of their mom battling cancer, and 12 years after their dad's death, those 10 kids lost their mom too. And here's the crazy thing, and actually the really uplifting thing about this article. Nine of those 10 kids still live in the same house together. Keep in mind the oldest is now almost 30, or 30. The four oldest brothers share the master bedroom. Jean and Frank's kids have grown up to be a firefighter, an oncology nurse, an accountant, a cook. Two of them are still in high school. And they all live in the house and care for each other. Jean and Frank's kids are such a legacy to the strength that they had. And in some ways, Jean's strength surpasses even that of her brave husband because she faced the worst kind of tragedy and kept on loving and blessing and teaching. And this is how we live in the power and strength of the Spirit. When even life's darkest news and worst circumstances, even looking death in the face, can't stop us from living a life that's marked by grace and strength and God's love. And truly, it's one of those moments, it's in those moments of our greatest apparent weakness that God's strength shines, right? Most powerfully and beautifully. That's why this story is so beautiful to read. 
And it's what makes Moses' death and the years that led up to it instructive for us because he had the same kind of strength. But that's the the second one, the final characteristic of Moses' death that we find in this passage. Moses dies pointing to Christ. Moses dies pointing to Christ. And that might sound a little strange because Christ is not yet born. Jesus doesn't show up for several, a few thousand years. But if we really read verses 10 through 12 closely, it actually points very clearly to Moses and to Jesus. Let's read it together. It says again, since then, no prophet has written and has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt. And reading ahead a little bit, for no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Now these words present a powerful conclusion to Moses' life and to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But they're no longer true, right? The next prophet who arises in Israel to match this description was born in Bethlehem in 5 BC or something. Moses was most known and most remembered for two things, according to these verses. One, his intimacy with God. He was the man with the shining face for meeting face to face with God. And second, he was known for the power God wielded through him to perform signs and wonders. And though Moses didn't realize it, his life and his faith and his part in God's story actually point to the leader who'd be born thousands of years later, to to a virgin woman, to our Messiah. Many Bible scholars and theologians actually call Jesus the new Moses, the one who fulfills what Moses was called to do, what Moses started, the one who leads the people from slavery, right, to freedom from bondage to freedom, the one who opens the way into the true promised land, and the one who performs signs and wonders in order that the people might believe in the faithfulness and power of God. And Moses, simply by obeying God's call in his life at that burning bush 40-plus years ago, and leaving the comfort and quiet of Midian to follow God to Egypt and release this people from slavery, by his obedience to that, he is now created a life that in and of itself is a promise of what's to come. One of the most mysterious and beautiful stories in the Bible is actually that of the transfiguration, where Jesus takes Peter and James and John, his three closest friends, up on a mountain, much like Moses, and he's transformed before them into a being that's so bright they can't look at him. And then Moses and Elijah appear beside him, Moses, who never got to enter the promised land, is now standing next to the Messiah. It's amazing to me. And having spent all of this time studying Moses' life, this actually would close to bring me to tears. That Moses, this is the fulfilling of Moses' dream. And this is the fruit of his life that pointed all along to the promises and faithfulness of God. And so we're also invited to embody the promises and faithfulness of God. It's not enough to just believe the promises, and it's not enough to talk about them. Though Moses did this till he was blue in the face some of the time, our lives and the way we live them can point to God's faithfulness and to Jesus himself. And of course, this is actually the core calling of us as the church collectively. Jesus promises his disciples in John 14 that whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. 
And Paul is actually always calling the church the body of Christ, the literal physical representation of Christ. And Teresa of Avila, who was a saint in the 1500s, famously wrote a poem that built on Paul's idea. And you've likely heard it before. I think I've read it before, but I want to read it again. It's short, or at least this section of it is short. She writes, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Living for Christ means pointing to Christ. Not just with words, not just on Sundays, but with our lives. And it was Moses' life and the way he allowed his story to be shaped by God's story. And not by his own desires or for comfort or his own fears. It was his life that pointed to the promise of Christ. And it's our lives when they're marked by love and marked by sacrifice and marked by forgiveness of our enemies, as Jean Palombo was able to do. It's our lives God uses in waves we'll probably never fully understand to point towards his ultimate faithfulness and ultimately to his son, Jesus. And today as we close, I want to try and make this as tangible as possible for us. Because I believe the first thing we really must learn from the way Moses died in the passage today is that death happens, that it is a reality, that to be afraid to look at it in the face is to be afraid to look at who God has created us as humans to be. For all of us, our time in God's story on this earth is short, and we have to live, I think, by, like my friend Anthony was amazingly able to live, where we're even looking forward to the fact that, or as Paul the Apostle wrote, that death is gain, just as living is a gain. That we would, will be face to face with God, perhaps sooner than later. And if we can do that, I think it allows us to put the rest of our lives in perspective. You've heard this before. But then as you consider the decisions you make every day, you can choose to take up teaching instead of choosing maybe early retirement, for example. Or on a much smaller scale, you can choose to play in the park that's maybe not the safest one in the neighborhood in order that you could be a blessing to it. And you could choose to invite people over for dinner who are especially in need of a warm house and a good meal, even if they are outside your comfort zone of friends or people. These are little examples of the decisions we make every day I think we are called to make to be able to bless and teach and pass on wisdom no matter what season we're in. And so I want to challenge you to spend a moment praying as, as I close, and I'll pray for us in a moment. Who is God calling you to bless or to teach or to pass on wisdom to in this season? And then boldly ask God for the strength to do that in the midst of the challenges and fears and worries that you're carrying in this moment. And it may be that you need to pray for strength to continue to do what you're already doing. And it may be something new. But I believe God will grant you that strength. And even more, will use that step of faithfulness to allow your very life to point to Christ. Let's pray. God, I acknowledge 
that I am often caught up in my own fears and worries, whether it's a fear of death or financial insecurity, Lord, all of us struggle to really, truly, 100% believe what you say you will do, you will do. And I ask for increased faith for each of us. And then, God, I ask for your strength to fill us, to be your body in this world, to be your hands and your feet and your eyes for the people we meet. God, thank you for your faithfulness and for the promise that death is not the final word, that Christ has defeated death. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.